0: Hello, everyone. So, I'm starting off a little bit different tonight, because as the topic that everyone's talking about is coronavirus, um, a lot of you might have seen in the media that the 80% don't have to worry, real people don't have to worry. I'm one of the 20% that does have to worry. So, tonight, for the first time ever, I am very much aware that my story can make people very emotional and they usually like to hug me afterwards. Tonight, I'm asking that there is no contact precautions. That said, you're still welcome to come talk to me and I'm willing to answer any of your questions. It's just, I can't afford to get anything at the moment. Because it's, for me, it's not a matter of, if I get corona, it's when. And I need to be in my best possible health when that happens. Okay, here we go. After months of being told that she was just a nervous new mum, my mum finally received a diagnosis for the symptoms I presented with. It was a diagnosis that came with an expiry date she was told I had a 50% chance of living until I was 13. Cystic fibrosis is a progressive genetic disease that primarily impacts the lungs, resulting in persistent infections, scarring, respiratory failure and death. Through my childhood at my clinical appointments at CF camps, I knew exactly what my future held. It was a lifetime of treatments, punctuated by hospital visits, and if I was lucky enough to get to be an adult, the disability pension was waiting for me. My daily life consisted of physio twice a day, every day, and tablets, and then when I was unwell, we would go to hospital for something that's called a tune-up, and they would put a line into our elbow, it would go up across to our heart, and we would have antibiotics injected into it, and we would stay in hospital for two weeks. We call this a tune-up. When I was 14, My medical team said to my mum, well, you know, Sandy's getting older now. We think she should come in first. Tell us what's been going on and then you can come in, tell us what's been going on and we can transition the care. And my mum said, yeah, okay. So we did that the first time. Second time she sent me on the bus and I went into clinic and told them what had been going on and they said, "Uh, where's your mum? And I went, she didn't come. So they rang mum and she said, this is not my disease to manage, this is Sandy's and she is going to manage her health from now on. I could lie to you and say that it was really smooth and I did everything right, but I was a teenager and I pushed every limit that I could. But I learnt very quickly through this process what my body could and couldn't handle. So in the end, it might not have been a lesson learnt swiftly, but it was learnt well. At 16, when I went to a CF camp, my life changed. I met two people there. The first was Tom, and Tom was over 30. Most of the people I knew were barely older than I was and Tom had a job and Jan was there as well and Jan was pregnant and these two things I'd been told were never possible for me became things that I desperately wanted. Getting a job was not so easy because back in the late 80s and the early 90s everyone cited the reason that I was unemployable was cystic fibrosis. Disability discrimination was alive and well. Fortunately at that time I transitioned from Princess Margaret Hospital to Sir Charles Gardner Hospital. And tune-ups there were a little bit more flexible in that we could get a day pass, so we could come out and I would do my IVs in the staff room at lunchtime. It made holding a job a lot more sustainable, which was great. Relationships were a little bit tougher than getting a job because no one wanted to date the dying girl. In the end, I saddled myself to a man that I didn't love because I believed it was my only chance to have a child. When I announced I was pregnant, everyone had an opinion. No one had any hesitation in sharing it. Um, But my pregnancy was very uneventful because I made sure I was in the best possible health to have a pregnancy. When I was 33 weeks, my not-so-special specialist from King Edward said that I needed to go in to have bed rest and physio. As soon as I was there, it quickly became apparent that that was not the reason I was there. I was there because he did not believe that a woman with CF could have be- give birth naturally and he was trying to talk me into having a C-section. I wasn't having any of that. So I discharged myself and I went on to show him exactly what a woman with CF could do because I am CF strong. And I walked into that delivery room I gave birth without painkillers, and I walked out. Everything was going well until my son was three, and I got a infection. And that was the first time since my son had been born that I needed antibiotics. And once again, the system had changed. And this time, hospital in the home was an option. Charlie's were of the opinion that what would happen is they would put the PIC line in, that you'd stay in hospital for three days, and you'd finish the rest of the antibiotics at home. I was a single mum and that didn't suit me, so I was like, no, we'll go day surgery, put the pick in and I'll go straight home. And I did that uh, regularly, probably two to three times a year until my son was in year three. And one morning I woke up from my dream thinking, someone is spraying the back of my throat with a water pistol. As I became more and more awake, it became very apparent to me I was not being under attack from a water pistol, I was actually coughing blood. Uh, In the end, I coughed up over a cup of blood at home. I waited until my son woke up. I took him to school and I drove myself to hospital. At that time, they weren't letting me out, so I had to stay the whole two weeks. After that, I thought, well, I'm going to change some things. So, I decided to go travelling. Because again, this is something I've been told I couldn't do. Um, And I started writing my first book. And things progressed quite nicely. I was travelling, I was with my second husband, and life was pretty good until 2009 when the swine flu hit. And that's the year that changed everything. I did not catch swine flu that year. Instead, I contracted influenza A, not once, not twice, but three times. Each time the health department proudly did ring me to tell me that I had influenza A, not the swine flu. But my lungs took an absolute hammering, and my lung function dropped from 80% to 40%. And so, after winter, I worked, and I worked, and I did physio, I did extra antibiotics, inhaled antibiotics, and I did everything I could, and I got my lung function back up to 60%. And my husband and I went off to Egypt. I'm very proud to say that with a lung function of 1.6 litres, I climbed inside that robber's tunnel, all the way to the top of the Great Pyramid because um, I was there, and I wasn't not doing anything. Um, we came home, and the winter of 2010 hit, and my lungs crashed again. I ended up in hospital. This time, I was on oxygen, and my, my uh, specialist, Uncle Jerry, who I called him, he didn't come and see me at all in that hospital visit. In fact, I would hear him standing outside my room, And he would make decisions for my care, but I never actually saw him. And I even joked to the staff, well, maybe I have to grab my oxygen trolley and walk myself down to clinic to see him. But on the day before I was discharged, he came and he sat down and he said, Sandy, this is the talk I never thought I would ever have to have with you. And my heart stopped for a minute because I knew what was coming next. It's the talk you don't want to have with your specialist. It's the one where he tells you, There's nothing left. There's no more options. And the only possibility was that I needed to go on the uh, transplant wait list. So I thought, okay, I'll humour everyone. I'll go on this transplant wait list, but I'm going to prove them wrong and I'm going to get better. And I worked hard. I worked really hard, but nothing was working. So my husband and I decided, well, we would go off to Thailand. And the CF team were like, okay, that's just Sandy. Yeah, we've got to let her go. The transplant team were a bit like, you were going to where? Um, but I wasn't listed, so they didn't get a say. Um was flooded. And I used to joke that, well, it's really good because I only had a street to walk up and down and that's all I was capable of. But the truth was, I was a fish out of water because I wasn't in my own environment anymore. On my husband's 40th birthday, we were walking along the beach I had lost the ability to walk and talk at the same time many months before. I'd also lost the ability to walk and carry things. So he was carrying my handbag, he was doing all the talking and I'd only had three or four rest stops. And I thought, I'm doing so well. And then an elderly couple, one with a walking stick, the other with a Zimmer frame, went past me as if I was a snail. (laughs) And it was at that moment on that beach that I realised I wasn't losing a battle. I was losing the entire war. So we flew home and I got placed on the transplant wait list. I had to have a chat at that point with my 14-year-old son. His dad had offered that he could go and live with him in Sydney. My son would have stayed if I asked him to. I knew that. But the truth is, as I explained to him, it didn't matter where his location was. I would either be offered lungs that matched to me or I wouldn't. And so, I encouraged my son to move to Sydney, because I didn't think he deserved to watch me die. So, we packed Jaron up onto a plane to Sydney, and I went into hospital for a month. Um, I was on full-time oxygen, I started sleeping on BiPAP, and I said to Uncle Jerry at this point, what do I do? Is, is there any point where we're going, this is too much? And he said, you do whatever it takes to stay alive until that phone call comes, you do whatever it takes. And the hospital said to me, Sandy, you're sick enough, you can actually stay here in the hospital and wait until donated lungs are available. But I knew one thing. It would be easy to stay in hospital. Someone would come and do my physio, someone would come and deliver my drugs, they would deliver my meals. The toilet was two steps away. And it would be very easy to lay in that hospital bed and close my eyes. So I went home. Home where I had to do my own physio. Home where I had to prepare my own medications. Home where I had a 20 metre cord and it took me five minutes to walk to the bathroom with two rest stops. I was housebound like that for nearly three months and in the end I was literally hanging on by my fingernails on sheer willpower alone. When that call came, I had an hour to get to hospital. I was that sick that they couldn't put me under before the transplant, which is what normally happens, because they said if the transplant didn't go ahead, I would have to remain on the ventilator in ICU until another donor became available. So I was prepped, laying on the table awake while the surgeons went out to make one last check of the lungs. You have a lot of time to think when you're laying on an operating table. They say that your life flashes before your eyes. So I thought about a lot of things. I thought about all the things I had achieved. I was the fifth woman in WA to have a child with cystic fibrosis. I had travelled, I'd been to Egypt, I'd done all these things on my bucket list. My book was written and it was far enough advanced that it would go ahead without me. Jaron was 15. He was going to be okay. He was with his dad. And my husband was still young enough that if I died he could find himself another wife and he could still have his own children. And I decided right there on that table that if I died there, I was okay with the life I'd been given. It had been pretty awesome. But I also made another decision and that was that I wanted my life back. So if I woke up with new lungs, it was going to be game on.